Good morning, everyone. Good morning. My name's Sam. I'm one of the one of the leaders here. I'm one of the elders. You might not see me up here very often, but I'm going to start us off on a series on two Peter. So you can be hearing from the uh, the full cohort of elders at Cornerstone in the month of August. Very lucky as we give Steve and Paul the welders over rest. They're probably out on a beach somewhere now with a high factor sun cream on. But yeah. Yeah, really looking forward to, to going through this letter of 2 Peter. It's been really encouraging to me to go through it, to understand it, hear what Peter's saying. You really get the humanity of who, who Peter is. Um, and he's writing this letter at the end of his life. We'll go through that, through the book. But he's right at the end of his life here. He's, as tradition has it, and as historians believe, this is like the last letter he'd write, the last um, letter he writes from a cell in Rome. So he's been commissioned by Jesus and he's been establishing churches across Asia Minor and particularly Turkey and uh, modern day Turkey where he's writing this letter to those people now. So this is the last thing he's going to write. He's uh, about to be executed for his faith. The Christians have come under persecution under the Emperor Nero. So as tradition has it, he's about to be crucified upside down. He's going about to die a horrific death. But what's on his heart is not worry and fear, but his heart is for the sheep that Jesus had given him, the, the people in the church that Jesus had given him to care for and look after. And he's writing this letter out of a heart of compassion for them to stay close to Jesus, to know the right things about him, to know him and to love him. And the reason he's doing this now, particularly because in these churches, which he's established over, this, uh, over the years, he's been out as a missionary with his family across Asia, there's false teachers that have come into this church and to these churches. They're teaching false things about who Jesus is. They're saying that he isn't going to come back. They're ridiculing the return of Jesus. They're saying sort of new doctrines, saying you can live in ways in your body that don't matter as long as you think, right? You can act in ways that are like sexually immoral and that doesn't matter. They're also taking advantage of the people that are in this, this church. They're, they're trying to take their money and, and Peter, like a good shepherd, the under shepherd of Jesus, wants to care for them and look after them. So Peter, thousands of miles away, but trusting in God, trusting the Holy Spirit, these who writes these words, these will come and be faithfully read for these people. And here we are reading this letter again, us, part of that church that was established by Christ as well. So before we go into this letter, I just want to give a bit of a background of who Peter is and how he came to write this letter. So we're reminded of the person of Peter. So if you, yeah, I think we all know who Peter is, that disciple who really stands out. I just want to take you back. If you imagine you're back in the Sea of Galilee in the time of Jesus, in the morning, this man, Peter, a fisherman, has been out fishing all night. He's caught nothing. He's mended his nets. Then a crowd are coming towards this lake. A crowd are following this man who's teaching. And this is Jesus. And he comes towards the sea, and he can't find any space to teach. So he goes on a boat, and it's Peter's boat. He says to Peter, just take me out a little way in here so I can teach the people. Peter, fixing his nets. Okay, I'll take you out. And Jesus teaches the people. And Peter's there listening. And afterwards, Jesus says, Peter, take me out a little way. And so go out a little way in the water and throw your nets out. It's not caught any fish. And Peter says to him, Master. He calls him Master because he's heard him teach. He's seen his authority. He said, I've been, I've been fishing all night. I've caught nothing. But because it's you that says so, I'll do it. So Peter, perhaps thinking he's being a bit humble there. So he goes out into his boat, puts his net out, and pulls in more fish than the net can carry. The net's breaking. The boats are sinking. When Peter sees this miraculous deed, this miracle from Jesus, combined with the teaching of Jesus, he can come to only one conclusion. And that conclusion is, uh, this is Jesus, this is the Lord. And Peter's response is to fall on his knees and say, leave me alone, I'm a sinner. 
And Jesus said, don't be afraid. Stand up. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. I'm going to commission you. You don't know what's going to happen. And so let's, let's go forward, right, to a similar place in the lake. Peter has denied Jesus. Jesus has been crucified. He's risen from the dead, and he's appearing to people. And now Peter's out on the lake again. He's feeling a bit despondent. He's denied Jesus. And he said to, his other, he said to James and John Andrew, I'm going fishing. So he's going. He's been out fishing through the night. He's caught nothing. Maybe he's not a good fisherman. I'm not, I have that in my mind. Why does Peter never catch any fish? Anyway, and, and somebody shouts over to him, says, children, have you not caught any fish? Jesus rubbing it in a bit, maybe. Not caught any fish? They said, no. So throw your net out onto the right side. Throw the nets out, and they pull in fish. More. The net can, there's a lot of fish in there, but the net can take it. The boats are sinking. There's something about this repeat of this miracle that Jesus is there. The disciples can take it. They can understand who Jesus is and who they are, who they're called to be. They're taking the fish. And Peter puts his top on, dives into the sea, goes to be with Jesus. He doesn't fall on knees and say he's a sinner. He knows that. But he goes to Jesus, embraces him. And Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? He says, yes. He said, well, shepherd my sheep, tend my sheep. And that's what he's doing now. That's what he's done. He's faithfully walked with Jesus. He's established these churches. And now he's wanted to teach them to walk faithfully with Jesus, to know the right things about him, to know him and love him and continue until the end. So I'm going to pray because uh, I want this to apply to us as well. These words have been spoken to us as well. So I'm just going to pray for us. I'm going to read this passage and we're going to go through it. Yeah, Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for that your Holy Spirit is here now. You're going to speak to us through your word. I want to pray that you use my words, but you use your word, your scripture that you gave to Peter as an apostle and you're speaking to us now. I want to pray that Holy Spirit uh, yeah, will speak clearly to us. And uh, ultimately, I want to pray that we would, we would know you, Lord Jesus, and we would love you. Amen. So I'm going to read from 2 Peter, verses 1 to 11. So Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called to his own glory and excellence by which he's granted to us precious and great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours, and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you'll never fail. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I'm going to go through that passage now, sort of verse by verse, and hopefully some slides will be there, sort of summarizing if you ha- it helps you to sort of to listen by seeing as well. Hopefully these, these, these words and these slides will be there as well. But follow it through in your Bibles. If you have them, there's Bibles in the, in the pews as well, uh, and on your phones if you've got it there as well. 
So firstly, <clears throat> Peter's introduction, he says, I'm a servant and I'm, a, I'm an apostle. He's laying out, he's introducing himself as he speaks to these people, uh, these churches that he's planted. He says he's an apostle, which means he's been given an authority to write these words as scripture, an authority. He's been directly appointed by Jesus. So he's got that unique calling where Jesus taught him and said to Peter, you're one of my disciples, you're one of my apostles, go and, go and teach, go and plant churches. So he's not just a normal church leader like we've had as Peter, he's got this unique calling at this time to write this and write a scripture for us. He's got that authority in, and it's really important for he lays that out right at the start because there are people coming into the church who don't have that authority. They're not called by Jesus. They're false prophets. They're saying things that aren't true and aren't right. So Peter's making it clear who he is. He's writing this letter. But he's also saying he's a servant as well. So he loves his people and he cares for them as a shepherd cares for his sheep, as Jesus cared for his people. Peter is carrying on that and he's doing it in a servant-hearted way. So Peter knows what it is to, to serve uh, as a leader as well. And he had to be taught that by Jesus. So often you find in, in the Gospels, the disciples arguing about who is the greatest for some reason. It's often Peter, James and John, those closest to Jesus, and they were arguing about who the greatest was. And, and they were overheard probably more than once by Jesus. And how embarrassing to be overheard by Jesus arguing about who the greatest is. Because Jesus is the Son of God. He's the greatest. Peter confessed that. But also the attitude of Jesus was not to, to lord it over them. He said, don't be like the Pharisees. Don't be like the, uh, the Romans, just how they lead, wanted to be on the first. He said, the first will be last, and the last will be first. Jesus washed his disciples' feet. Jesus laid down his life for his sheep. So Peter said, I'm a servant. I care for you, but I've got an authority as an apostle. I want to teach you this. And he says to them, to those who've obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, He's saying to them, you've obtained a faith. You're believers now. He's speaking to mainly believers in here. And he's saying you've obtained a faith, which means Peter has laid out, Peter and the other apostles and those who've been in these churches have laid out the scriptures to them. They've explained who Jesus is through the prophets. Explained it's only through Jesus that you can be reconciled to the Father. Jesus' death on the cross, that atoning death. He said, you've heard this and you've obtained a faith. Which means you've heard these words from us. You've been given something. You've received a faith. That means they've been given the ability to believe through the Holy Spirit. The only reason they can believe is their dead soul will be made alive by the Holy Spirit. They've received, received a gift, the ability to believe. And you've obtained this faith, and it's of equal standing with ours. Peter's saying it's, it's when he says ours, he's saying, referring to himself and Paul, some of the apostles, these, these men who knew Jesus, who walked with Jesus, who had uh, Paul himself, who said that he'd, he'd been, in, been in heaven, whether in the spirit or in the flesh. Miracles are following these guys around. When Peter walks, people want to go in his shadow so they could be healed. People have been raised from the dead through the ministry of the apostles. So these men are saying, he's saying, you've got faith of equal standing with ours. Because it's not about them. It's about their faith in Jesus. And he's saying that to us right now, that if we believe in Jesus, if we trust in him, we've got that faith of equal standing as even the great heroes of the faith. I just want to read a quote from a, a theologian called Michael Reeves, who I've been reading a book by his, and he says, the struggling failure who trusts in Jesus is as much a child of God as the greatest hero of the faith. Peter knows what that is to, to fail at times. But he's saying, he's, he's saying you've got a faith as equal standing with ours. Even if you feel a failure this morning, if you trust in Jesus as the greatest hero of the faith, you've got that, you've got that same faith as them. And you're as much a child of God as them. So in summary, it's that first verse, he's saying, this is who I am. This is the faith you've got. And now what? So verse two, 
basically a summary of what Peter's about to speak about, what I'm going to sort of unpack in these next 10 verses. It says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So if we have the right knowledge of God through Jesus, if we know who God is in Jesus, and if we know Jesus, and if we hold fast to that and live according to that, we can have grace and peace multiplied to us. That's the logic. Know what's right about God. Hold fast to that. You'll have grace and peace as his disciples. And that's what we want this morning. So I'm going to read through verse three and four. And this is where Peter starts to talk about now you have a faith, you want to continue to walk in godliness. You want to, you want to continue in that glory and excellence as his children. You want to be growing as his disciples. So he's going to explain in these verses how you do that and how do we do to continue to grow once we've received that faith. So let me read these and I'm just going to break it down a little bit. It says, His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his very precious and great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So there's a lot in there, but for me, I, could summarize, I want to summarize that in. If you have the right knowledge of who Jesus is, and if you know Jesus, if you have the Holy Spirit that dwells within you, giving you that divine power and divine nature, and if you believe that you belong to Christ and he'll complete your walk until the end, you're going to walk in glory and excellence. So firstly, knowledge. What is knowledge? The most important thing, well, first thing actually, is just, it's that right knowledge of who Jesus is. Peter's speaking against those false teachers and saying, if you objectively know who Jesus is, believe that he is a savior, believe he's coming back, confess that and that God raised him from the dead. These are the right things we need to know in our minds who Jesus is. I read, uh, so John MacArthur, a, a pastor and theologian, summarizes it like this. He says, Christianity it's not a mystical religion, but it's based on objective, historical, revealed, and rational truth from God and intended to be understood and believed. The deeper and wider that knowledge of the Lord, the more grace and peace are multiplied. So now that we believe in Jesus, we need to increase in that knowledge of him and hold fast to that. And these are objective truths. And as I find that, you know, for someone who's like, works as civil engineers, I like objective, solid truths. There's one answer, and it's Jesus. And yeah, so I get excited about that. But I don't want to just stay there because there's a different type of knowledge as well. There's that knowing of Jesus, that's knowing him as well. It's that love for him. So when Peter was in Jesus on that beach having barbecued fish, Jesus said to him, you know, Simon Peter, do you love me? And he said it three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? And I'm, you know, I must have hurt to the core because he knew he denied Jesus three times. And Jesus wanted to make sure before he commissioned him to shepherd his sheep, before the Great Commission, he wanted to know, do you love me? Do you love me, Simon Peter? That's going to hold you close to me. That's going to keep you in that race. And, and for me, I felt that as well. I feel that call for Jesus said, do you love me, Sam? Stay close to me. I just feel for us as well. We need to stay close to Jesus. If we want to walk with him. We need to be, be with him, be with him and his people, spending time with him, getting to know him, loving him. Again, in the same book, Michael Reeves says, if you live and grow in your knowledge of God, but do not grow in your delight in God, you're only hardening in sin and hypocrisy. The ultimate purpose of all theology is not merely to gather information, but to know, love, and enjoy God. So we can't just know the truth. Satan knows the truth about Jesus. We've got to love the truth. We've got to love the man. We've got to love Jesus. 
the purpose of this Bible, the purpose of this word, is not just to gain knowledge, it's to know God, enjoy him, and delight in him. So that's the first, first thing we need to keep growing in godliness, that knowledge, knowing Jesus. The second thing is divine power. There's divine power within us, the same Holy Spirit that allowed us to believe in God, to have faith in Jesus. It's the same power that dwells within us now. If you're a believer today, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. And that is what you need to grow in godliness. And with this divine power, you get the divine nature as well. You become more like Jesus. There's something within it. You may not feel it at times. You may feel like you're a sinner saved by grace. But this divine power is creating a divine nature in you. You're becoming more Christ-like because of the Holy Spirit. And ultimately, when we go to be with Jesus, that divine nature will be fulfilled because we'll be sinless, we'll have a new body, and we'll live forever. And that'll be fulfilled. We'll have that divine nature within us incompletely. Finally, we've also got some very precious and great promises to hold on to. We've got knowledge, we've got divine power, we've got precious and great promises. And I feel for this, as, you know, as Peter's talking about this, that is, that is belonging to Jesus. That is knowing that if we belong to him, he sustains us into the end. We'll persevere to the end. We will endure until the end. And as I, like, as I was going through this, I was just thinking about that promise over myself. And sometimes I think if you go in different directions at times and you walk with God, you feel like you've failed at times. Christ completes that work he started in you. He's going to complete the work he started in you. So knowing that in your mind, knowing that Jesus is going to take you to the end, if you belong to him, you're not going to be lost. You're not going to lose one of his. It's going to sustain you into the end. That's a great and precious promise. You will finish the race. You'll finish the work that Christ started in you. So before we go on to speaking about what it is to live godly living, just to summarize, we need to grow in our knowledge of what's right about God, again, to his word, understand who God is, get to know Jesus, have that love relationship with him, realize we've got divine power and divine nature within us. We've got these special promises, these precious promises that Christ is going to complete what he started within us. Paul talks about this a lot. He talks about it in Corinthians. He says, I worked harder than any of them. Paul works hard. We're going to work hard in a minute as we go through these next verses. But he said, it was not I, but the grace of God that was within me. It's a great, and he realized it was God doing that work within him. So verse 5 says, for this very reason, so what Peter just talked about, for this very reason, Make every effort, and we're going to speak about a list of things. And if you do those things, you'll get some benefits. So there's logic there, Peter is saying. Because of this, because of your motiv- motivation here, make every effort, do something, have an action, and you'll get something. It'll be a benefit as well. So what are the, uh, what's the drivers then? What's, what's the motivation that you spoke about just then? In 2 Peter 3, verse 14, he talks more about the coming of the Lord, the coming of the day of the Lord. The heavens will be dissolved. As we speak in an amazing grace. There'll be new heavens and a new earth. We're going to be reunited with Jesus either in our death or if he returns. We need to be long-sighted. Peter speaks later on about being short-sighted. People just focus on what's in front of them, what's going on in their lives, little things that are incidental. We need to be long-sighted, knowing what's coming. We're going to be with Jesus. That's the reason we're here. We believe these objective truths about Jesus. So in 2 Peter 3, 4, Verse 14, it's therefore, beloved, beloved, because you're waiting for these things, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace. We want to live lives that are godly because we know what's coming. We also want to live godly lives as well because we love Jesus. We want to please him with our lives. You know, in, his, in um, yeah, 1 John, he said, you know, John, the apostle said, if you love me, 
keep my commandments. That's what you know, Jesus is saying. If you love me, follow me. Keep my commandments. Live godly lives. And I was reading, um, we read in Psalm 119. And in that Psalm, the different Psalmists talk about the law of God, like the commandments of God, the statutes and the precepts. They're speaking about the law of God and what it is to follow him with real passion. They're talking about, I delight in them, incline my heart to them, I long for them, I love for them, I'm panting for them. I was, you know, when I read that first, it's strange. Why is this guy panting for the law of God? Because you know, he's actually loving God. He's, you know, the law um, is who God is. His precept is who God is, his character. We know Jesus is the word and he fulfills the word. So our desire to live godly lives is to please Jesus, to please him, and to desire that as well. So now, verse 5, make every effort to supplement your faith. This is what we're going to do now. These are the, uh, the godly living that we're being encouraged to do by Peter. So we're gonna, we, we live like this. This is our mission and our calling, not just to be believers, but to walk and be salt and light. So to summarize before, with our eyes on eternity, knowing what's coming, with a love for Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing that Christ completes it, we're going to supplement our faith with virtue. So what is virtue? Virtue is godly morals combined with action. So knowing what is right and living out what is right. So you say a man or woman who's virtuous is someone who knows what is right, but is actually living that out as well. So outside of the, outside of the church, perhaps outside of knowing God, people in the world will often try and live virtuous lives. They, they signal what they think is virtuous. That would be saying these things are good and right, and I'm going to live up to them. So I'm going to be virtuous. But if you don't know Christ, if you don't know God, you're going to, they're going to fail because they don't know what goodness is. They don't know what his commandments is. They don't know what good is. They've got perhaps an idea of what it is, but are unable to, to identify what true goodness is and godliness is. And secondly, they're not able to live up to that. They'll be, they'll be hypocritical. You can't live up to their own standards. But thankfully, we know what goodness is. We know what God is. We know what, what Jesus has laid out for us in the scriptures. And we're able to live up to it because the Holy Spirit is within us, and he's forming that divine nature within us. So we supplement our virtue with knowledge. That's knowledge of who God is, that right knowledge of, of knowing God and knowing what is right. We supplement that knowledge with self-control. So we're not just to know what's right um, and do nothing about it. We have to, it matters how we live. So self-control is, is an action in a sense. We're to, to live with um, in ways that matter in accordance to God's law for our love for Jesus. And this comes against the false teachers there who are saying it doesn't matter how you live in your body. As you'll see later on in this book, these, these false teachers are coming in acting like, in like sexually immoral ways. They say, well, that's my body. I can, I can think rightly and that doesn't matter. They're like Gnostic teachers. But we know and Peter knows it doesn't matter how you live. We need to have self-control. Because, that, you know, when that evil day comes, which it says in the, in the Bible, that evil day is when that temptation comes. We all know what we're tempted by. Or there's different things where we're tempted to sin. When that temptation comes, if we're overcome by it, we're enslaved by it. We don't want to be people who are enslaved by sin. It's for freedom. It's for freedom that Christ sets free. So when we see that temptation come, we need to put to death the works of the flesh by the Spirit. As Paul says, I say to walk by the Spirit, you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. We've got the ability to grow in godliness through self-control, empowered by the Spirit. 
So when we need to see sin as a fleeting pleasure, we need to put it to death for the greater joy that is ahead of us. There is real joy in resisting sin and overcoming it because we don't want to be enslaved. As well as that, we supplement our self-control with steadfastness, which means we keep going, keep going. We keep putting to death sin. We keep coming to church. We keep coming to our gospel communities. We don't want to be Christians who are sort of here today, gone tomorrow, sort of boom and bust. I've known people for years who will come to church or just go off the radar for, for weeks or months. But we want to be steadfast because it's an encouragement to each other. And I had a, I had a real experience of steadfastness a couple of weeks ago. I went on a, went on a bike ride up in the Yorkshire Dales. And I was going, and I was going to go up a hill. A friend of mine will go cycle up this hill. I knew it was going to be big. I didn't quite realize it was one of those ones that the Tour de France went over and you know, professional cyclists test themselves over. And so I started going up that. It just didn't end. I persevere. I'd, like, I'd sweated most of the moisture that was in me by the first like 100 meters. And then my lungs started heaving. I thought, I'm sorry, a chest infection. Then my lungs hurt. I felt physically sick. I wanted to vomit. I got on the top of that hill. <laughs> I'm not that unfit, but it was a big hill. And um, got to the top of the hill, descended. That's another story. And then, uh, and then eventually we came back around again. And we're going back around to where we started, through a different valley. And for some reason, I thought we might have gone around the hill. And, and I passed, we passed some cyclists. I said to them, oh, are there any hills this way? And he laughed at me. And you know, I, thought, I thought I was joking. And it was another one of those testing hills that the professional cyclists go, a climb called Kidstones. And as I was going up that, I was like, yeah, this is hard, but it felt good. I felt like I can do this, I can do this. And then, because I've been through that experience, that pain, I was able to persevere. So the more we persevere in, in living lives of godliness and self-control, we, we become, by the power of the Holy Spirit, more able to overcome the sin that's in our lives. So we need to persevere. And we supplement that with godliness. So that's being obedient to God. We need to live lives that are obedient to God. And they could do a whole sermon on what it is to be obedient to God. But it can be fulfilled in one word. You should love your neighbor as yourself. We call to radical love. As, as Jesus like, showed by living his life and explained in the Sermon of the Mount. To love your enemies. To pray for those that persecute you. We can't do that on our own. People can can signal virtue outside of doing that, but there's a lack of forgiveness, the lack of love for your enemies there, isn't there? Because it's only, the, it's only God that can do that within you. Because I believe that we even, we even struggle to have affection for each other, to love each other as brothers and sisters. That's like the first step, isn't it? And I know from myself, from, from people, that we hold little bits of unforgiveness, little bits of perhaps bitterness against each other, just little things that creep in and the enemy gets a hook in there. It stops you having affection and love for each other. We're supposed to love each other as brothers and sisters. I had an experience of that when I had this Monday Thursday service before the Easter, before Easter Sunday. And as Michael and the guy on the team were leading that, we just sat in this circle. We're just singing song after song about Jesus. I felt my affections for Jesus increasing. My love for him increasing. And I was looking at people around me. I felt my affection for them increasing as well. My love for them. I did feel like afterwards, I think I did, I just wanted to like touch people, hug them, put my arm around them. We need to do that. If we want to grow in that love that God's called us to be, we need to start by loving each other. We need to start by forgiving each other. We need to spend time with Jesus and with his people and get that affection for each other as well. The Holy Spirit wants to do that through us. 
we supplement that with love. That's a culmination of love. People that live steadfast lives are self-control with each other, loving each other and forgiving each other. So let's just look at ourselves in that briefly. Because verse 8 says, if these qualities are yours and increasing. Are these qualities yours and increasing? I think if you're a believer today, these are yours. And I also believe, if you're a believer, they are increasing. So when you look and analyze yourself, we can perhaps be a bit negative sometimes to think, oh, I'm not really increasing in self-control. But if you ask somebody who knows you well, maybe your wife or your husband or a friend, or someone you're in a discipleship group with, are these increasing in me? You might be encouraged that they are. It's me, Emily, really, my wife encourages me by, you know, a t- you know, just a time a while ago where I was reading the Bible every day, trying to get through the Bible in a year. And she noticed that there was a change in me, I'm not just gathering knowledge, but my, my relationship with Jesus, my knowing of him, she saw a change in me. And we need to be encouraged in that because Christ is going to complete the work he started. If you continue in him, he's going to continue that work in you as well. And if you feel like these are increasing in me, I feel like I haven't got any self-control. I'm not a heart of love. Well, we don't have to just go diving straight into like, I need to read more of the Bible, I need to do, do, do. And not even as Peter did, just go on your knees as a sinner. We need to do that. We need to throw ourselves to Jesus, throw ourselves to him in his arms. As the Apostle John, he referred to himself as a disciple who Jesus loved. Maybe just refer to yourself as that. That you are the, I'm, I'm not, I'm the person that Jesus loves. I'm the disciple that Jesus loves. As you get that knowledge of that, that knowing that, begin to change. So, what if we don't live out these qualities? I perhaps set up a bit of a, a spiritual straw man here, but it probably does happen that people might think, well, if Christ completes that work in me, if I'm saved and God's going to do that work, I'm going to make it to the end. Why should I live these uh, these godly qualities. Why should I? Why should I live in this way? Well, I think Peter gives us three reasons. Starting in verse eight, he says, "If these qualities are yours and increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful." So we want to be effective and fruitful. We don't want to just be frustrated with our lives that we're not effective and fruitful. We want to be encouraging to those brothers and sisters in our church, building them up by living these godly lives. We also want to be effective and fruitful to our colleagues, our friends, and our families who don't know Jesus, who don't know God, who want to be salt and light, want people to see our lives and to be attracted and drawn to the Savior as well. So we want to be effective and fruitful. Secondly, Peter says, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he's cleansed from his former sins. If you forget you've been cleansed from your sins, you start to feel guilty about it. You start to have doubts. You start to be anxious about that as well. You're living anxious Guilty lives as Christians is not, not a good combination. You're open to the accusations of, of, of Satan as well. The accuser of the brethren will accuse you. You'll start to feel guilty. So we need to start living these godly lives to silence the accuser. And finally, in verse 10, it gets get even worse. He says, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if, these, if you practice these qualities, you'll never fail. You might start to, desire, you might start to doubt you're a Christian at all. So if you're confirming your calling election, you live in these lives, you start to believe you are a Christian. If you doubt you're a Christian, um, it, it, that could be a, as a result of not, not living this way. So Jesus knows who are his. He has no doubt who are his sheep and who belong to him. But we might start to have doubts if we stop living in these ways. So just to conclude with verse 11, Peter says, For in this way they will richly be provided for you, 
an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I believe Peter here has his eyes on eternity. And he says, if you continue to walk this way, you will be richly provided an entrance into eternity. He knows he's going there. And his desire is for his people to go there as well, to keep walking with him as disciples. And his desire is for us to know that as well. As he's speaking as an apostle, these words are for us. We want to keep walking as disciples, keep, keep close to Jesus. And then we're going to be there. We're going to meet him. We're going to be with him. I want us to um, want us to take communion in a minute, and as we do that, I want us to like pray together as well as this people. I really believe this this growth in godliness is something we do as a body, as his people. So as I um, as I'm going to talk through these verses for communion, I'm going to lead us into some prayer, and we're going to pray together, take communion together, and Michael's going to lead us in worship. So when we take communion, we're remembering what Christ has done for us. It says in Luke, this cup has been poured out for you, the new covenant in my blood. We're under a new covenant. We're not under the law. Jeremiah prophesies and he says, that I will not turn away from doing good to them. This is a new covenant. Jesus is not going to turn away from doing good to us. I will put the fear of me in their hearts. They may not turn from me. I'll rejoice in doing them good. Jesus rejoices in doing his good. He rejoices in forming that Christ-like character out of us. That's that new covenant. He's going to do that work. And as Paul says in Corinthians, he will sustain you to the end, guiltless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. He will sustain us to the end, yeah, guiltless. Let's trust in those great promises. Let's pray for each other, pray that we'd be encouraged in that, joyfully built up that Christ is going to complete the work. Let's pray for each other that we'd grow a solid light as godly children of God. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your love for us, you care for us. I thank you for the word you brought through your, uh, your child Peter and that it speaks to us now. I thank you that the Holy Spirit is within us now, desiring to do good to us, desiring for us to grow in godliness. I want to pray that we'd reflect on our hearts this morning. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. And with boldness of confidence, we'd continue walking with you, Lord, until we meet you face to face.